All right. Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you. How are we doing? We're doing a little extra rested uh, this morning. And um, man, that was kind of fun as uh, someone who's been around the church for a while and um, singing a lot of those songs. I always enjoy, uh, we've done this a couple times, our fallback throwback. Um, my joke is like some of you are, if you, if you weren't here for the introduction, you're like, man, how far back did I set my clock this morning. Like that was, that was a little further back than I was anticipating. And others of you, if you're like new to church or, or, or new to uh, kind of, you know, walking with Jesus and you're like, I've never heard any of those songs. Um, don't worry about it. It's okay. Like it's, um, you know, hopefully you just enjoyed uh, that for, for what it is. And, um, you know, as we get started um, and, and get ready to turn to God's word, I, I feel like I just, I need to do this because, um, you know, sometimes I feel like sometimes people don't always feel seen or sort of recognized. And so um, parents of young kids, Fallback Sunday, you're seen this morning. I know it was like a struggle. You're trying to convince them and explain to them the merits of sleeping in and, and how good it is, and they're just not having it. You know, they sometimes get up earlier on this Sunday. You're like, oh, this is supposed to be the extra, the extra hour of sleep. So I just want to you know, recognize parents, small kids. That's, that was our house, too, this morning. Um, and uh, uh, our, our littlest guy kind of came walking out this morning. I'm like, bud, we got another hour. Let's go back to bed. He's like, really? And I'm like, yes, really. It's, it's, it's in, I don't know how long he was because I left shortly after that, so I left him, left him with mom. So, um, hey, uh, open up your Bibles if you've got them uh, to the book of James. If you don't have a, a copy of Scripture with you, we'd love for you to see this for yourself, have it on your lap, uh, be able to um, interact with it this morning. And so you can use one of our Bibles in, in, in one of the seats um, in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you. We are in James, continuing in our series in James. This fall, we're walking through this short book. So it's toward the end of the New Testament. And um, we are. Uh, this is what we like to do around here. We often will pick passages or books, and, and we, we walk verse by verse, kind of line by line, uh, paragraph by paragraph through them. And that's what we're doing in the book of James. And there's a ton of practical, um, everyday value that we are finding in this um, uh, just important book. And we come to a passage this morning um, that I, I would love to just kind of frame up by reading for you an excerpt from um, a book that was written quite a while ago. Um, it's a little bit older, uh, like we're talking decades older. Um, it was uh, written by um, uh, C.S. Lewis, and um, uh, it might be familiar to some of you, but it's called Screw Tape Letters. Now, in order to kind of understand this, this little excerpt that I'm going to read, I have to kind of explain what Screw Tape Letters is all about. It's, it's um, kind of a unique uh, book, but it's kind of this fictional work uh, imagining what it would be like for this young, um, kind of up-and-coming um, demon, uh, sort of you know, henchman of, um, of Satan uh, that's wanting to make his way in, in his work of distracting, discouraging, kind of attacking, going after um, those that are following after God. And so to get his, uh, some advice, he writes to his uncle, Screwtape, and, and asks for some advice. And so these are the Screwtape letters. They're the letters back uh, to um, the nephew and, and some instruction. And so uh, I think this is going to help set us up where we're going uh, this morning, and, um, and, and it's going to be helpful. And you can just kind of listen. I didn't, um, it's kind of longer, so I didn't put it on the, um, the screen. But, um, but I'm, I'm kind of jumping in the middle. What, what, what Screwtape is telling his nephew is that one of the ways to distract or to discourage um, those seeking to follow the Lord is to, just, um, to tempt them with pleasure. Like tempt them with some good things. And, um, and so this is, this is, we'll kind of pick it up here. He writes, as this condition becomes more fully established, you will, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. 
As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that is what a habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods of time. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. If C.S. Lewis was writing this today, I'm sure there would be a reference to Netflix or um, you know, scrolling on that mobile device or something like that in that, that, uh, co- that cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. So that at last he may say, as one of, his own, one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one with whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels and whistling of tunes that he does not like, and in the long, dim labyrinth of revelries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness, But do remember that the one thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, providing that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And I love uh, sometimes when you read uh, something that kind of um, strikes so true, even decades later, right? I mean, things have changed, technology has changed, the distractions that we have has changed, but yet, as I'm reading this, how many of us are like, yeah, that is totally how it goes, right? How many of us have gotten to the end of our week and we look back and we're like, what did I do this week? Or we get to the end of the day and we're like, man, I had all these thoughts and ambitions and I I didn't really enjoy any of the things that I even did and and yet here I am at the end of the day, I'm no more refreshed or or encouraged than I began and I didn't really accomplish the things that I wanted to and, 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 and just kind of that. It's like, There is so much power in distraction. And one of the reasons that it's so powerful is it takes our eyes off of the things that are the most valuable, the most important, the most life-giving. And that's really one of the things that I think the enemy is after in our lives. As we come to this passage this morning, I think there's two other distractions, not necessarily mentioned in this little excerpt, but two other distractions that I think often, if we're not careful, we'll take our eyes off of the goodness the satisfaction, 
the glory that's found in knowing God. And the topics that we're covering uh, this morning um, is, uh, is that of our tomorrow and our riches. Um, I'm calling the, the sermon, uh, Remember God, because what we want to do, what, what kind of this is a call to, I think what James is trying to encourage the church in is to remember God in your tomorrow and remember God in your riches. Don't forget God's rightful place, his, his rightful importance, like his impact and effect and direction on these things. And again, if we're not careful, just like uh, Screwtape was instructing his young nephew, I think it's easy for us to be distracted with things that are uh, so less satisfactory, so less important, so less um, life-giving. And then we find ourselves forgetting the goodness and the presence of God. And so this morning, this is kind of a return for us, a, a, just kind of a call to action to, to remember the Lord in these things. I think it's gonna be um, helpful for us, but before we go any further, let me just pray as we um, read through God's word that, that, that God would be shaping and, and teaching us now as we look to him and his word. And so would you just join me um, as I pray? God, we thank you for what you have perfectly given to us, God, which you have perfectly expressed in your word. And Lord, the way that you're shaping, directing, changing, leading us. And Lord, would you do that now? Uh, would you teach us from your word? God, we don't wanna miss that which you have laid out in front of us. We don't want to forget that which is so important that we remember. And so Lord, I ask that you will teach us this morning and that you will help us to be quick to apply and to reflect and to respond to that, um, God, that you are calling us to. We are your people. You are our God. And we want to respond to you as such. And so, Lord, lead us now, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. 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 All right, we're in James chapter four. Let me read through, there's kind of two sections, like I said, two themes. So the first theme is our tomorrow. Let me read through this first section, then we'll kind of walk our way through it. Uh, here's what it says. You can follow along on the screen or in your copy of scripture. Verse 13 of chapter four. Come now, who you say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil." So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Um, the first thing that I think we have to understand as we uh, want to remember God in our tomorrow is this, is that we need to recognize the uncertainty of our life. We need to recognize the uncertainty of life. Um, James begins this section a little bit different from some of his others. If you've been with us and kind of following along uh, James kind of bounces from topic to topic. It's sort of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. He usually introduces a new topic, new subject, by saying this uh, keyword, brothers. He doesn't do that here. Here and in the next section, he uses this word, come now. And uh, come now is um, uh, kind of similar, or it would be kind of likened to us saying, hey, listen up. And so, um, so you know, even as you are kind of taking notes now, I can, I can be like, hey, hey, listen up, guys. Eyes up here, look up here, Right? And some of you like even shudder with me doing that. You remember a teacher or a coach or somebody, you know, that like, you're like, oh man, like I gotta, I gotta pay attention, sit up straighter, right? And, um, and you kind of drift off. And, and so he's like, hey, listen up. Focusing the attention, kind of calling their attention. He's like, what I'm about to say is important. Don't miss this. And he introduces this subject. He says, you who say, 
today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade or make a profit. He's kind of speaking specifically to uh, those that are making plans for the future. Um, you know, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this, and this is what it's going to look like. And this would have been a familiar uh, situation or thing um, that they would have encountered. He's writing to Jewish believers uh, within the culture of the day, specifically within the Jewish people. Um, it was very common to uh, travel for commerce, right? So he's like talking to these merchants and saying, hey, you have this plan to go set up shop there, make a profit, make a buck or two, come back, and then you've got this, this well-laid plan uh, sort of laid out there. And he's, he's kind of calling into a question like, hey, where is God in these plans? Like, do you understand the uncertainty of your life? Right? He's like, you don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. Uh, you don't know how you're going to feel when you wake up in the morning. How can you tell me what's going to happen a year from now? Like, there are so many factors that are, are at play and could change between now and then. And so he says, like, there's this uncertainty to our lives. Now, as we go through these passages this morning, I want to point out a couple things that it's not saying. One of the things that it's not saying is that planning or sort of forethought is a bad thing. All right, so the Bible's not condemning, James is not condemning here um, kind of wise thinking and future planning. Uh, in fact, there's plenty of other passages in Scripture and Proverbs and, and others where it says, like, the, the plan for the future is actually a, a, a being a good steward of what God has entrusted you. And so if you're married, um, if you have a family, you should definitely have a life insurance policy, right? Like, I just, I think you should. You don't want to leave your, your, um, your spouse, your kids uh, in, in a bind if, if something were to happen to you. And they're not even that much. And, and so you have the ability in this kind of, you know, climate that we're in today, you can have that. I think there's a lot of value in that. So this isn't saying don't get a life insurance policy, right? Because you, you don't know what's going to happen. So why would I plan for that? It's also saying, or not saying, don't save for retirement, there's some value in kind of putting something aside and having a plan and what does it look like and, and, and some of that. There, there, there is wisdom in planning. The Bible talks about counting the cost before you build the tower, right? So there is some forethought that's good. So it's not saying don't plan for the future. The other thing that it's not down on is making a profit. The, the, the thing that he's addressing here is not the fact that they're going to make a profit. Some point to this verse and they're like, see, capitalism is terrible, and we can have a different conversation about some of the merits or you know, whatever. That's, that's a whole other thing. But this isn't saying that making a profit is bad. It's okay to make a profit if you do it in a you know, honorable like, you know, business practice, like upright way, not taking advantage of others or something. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, again, this assumption that, that my life is going to go this way, assuming that I have control with certainty of my life. So... Now that we kind of understand that, the heart of the issue that's being addressed here is prideful planning of the future with little to no regard for the will of God and his presence in it. That's what's going on here. And in verse 14, he tries to make the point here. He says, so you, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, right? What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Around here, here in Wisconsin, um, we've all woken up to a morning that kind of looks like, um, like this, Right? We've gotten up, we've seen the kind of the mist out there on the road or whatever, and we know what's coming. It's not going to hang around all day. Give that sun a chance to kind of come up, and it's gone, right? It's just, it's just there for a bit, and then it's gone. And the picture, again, James loves these word pictures, these illustrations. The idea is that our life is like that. Like, we are here, and then we're not. Our life is so fleeting. It is so temporary. And so who are we to assume 
how many days we have and how those days are going to unfold, we need to recognize that there is an uncertainty in life. And listen, I know that there is some, some planning and some forethought that's given, but we gotta be careful um, that we, we don't put our hope in things that, that, are hope, that will not hold up under the weight of our hope. There's this uh, kind of saying around our house where my kids have adopted where um, we'll kind of say, hey, you wanna do this? And, and then they'll um, get excited about it. And then the kind of classic parent thing where kind of plans change or it doesn't kind of, you know, the thing runs longer or whatever. I don't get home when I thought I was or something kind of happens. It's like, hey, we need to kind of revamp that plan a little bit. And they'll be like, dad, my hopes were up. And I'll ask them sometimes, like, are your hopes up, right? Because your hopes are about to be put down is, what, is what's going to happen here. I'm sorry, but like, you know, that's... And oftentimes, if we're honest, right, sometimes it's like, well, you know, the, the reason that we struggle as we walk through situations is because our hopes were up. Are your hopes up? Are your hopes in something? Well, I was really hoping that, that this job was going to kind of go this way. And then in a few years, I was going to get this op- opportunity. I was going to move to that place to go to school, and then I was going to graduate with this degree, and then my my, my kind of future was going to go like this, or I was going to meet so-and-so, and then that was going to kind of unfold this way, and by now it was this. My hopes were up. See, the reality is if we fail to recognize the uncertainty of life, we're putting hope in things that it cannot stand under the weight of. We need to remember this picture of the mist. Our life is here for a little time, and then it vanishes. In, re- in recognizing the uncertainty, the next kind of part or part of, uh, step of this is in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or that. Listen, uh, church, we need to uh, do this. Write this down. Remember the sovereignty of God. He's encouraging them to remember the sovereignty of God. Instead of saying, hey, we're going to go do this, we're going to go there, which we do all the time, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and move there. I'm gonna, this is how it's going to go. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and we will do this or that. Again, some helpful clarification. What he's not saying is he's not calling for a mechanical use of this statement with every plan and every statement that we make, right? So it would be wrong <laughs> of you this week, later today, whatever, Um, to just kind of tack on, like, if the Lord wills to this. See, we see examples of this even in Scripture. Uh, Paul, when he's um, making plans in Acts 18, 21, um, he says, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return if God wills, and he he, uh, set sail from Ephesus, right? So he uses the phrase there. And then when he's writing to the church in Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 19, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. But then there's some other opportunities where it's not used. Acts 19.21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he doesn't include the, if the Lord wills there. Romans 15.28, when I have therefore completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. 1 Corinthians 16.5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Okay, so even within scripture, we have examples of plans being set, plans being made, and then this phrase not being used. So it's not so much about the, again, the mechanical use of these words, but it's more about the heart that's behind them. See, maybe you know this guy, 
or maybe you are this guy. I don't know if you're this guy. I don't, I was trying to think because I didn't, I, I hate, I don't want to like isolate one person in our church. So I don't think we have this guy or this gal in our church right now, but I've certainly known these in my past, okay? So if this is you, I'm not intentionally trying to step on your toes, but I might a little bit. I've known people that, that, that tack on this phrase to just about everything they say. Like, hey, you coming over for the game? Yeah, I'll be there, I'll be there at seven if the Lord wills. Right? Or should the Lord tarry? I've, I've like kind of riffed on that before a little bit. Like, should, that's, an old, that's like kind of old school. Like, um, uh, if the Lord, should the Lord tarry, I'll be there, I'll be there tonight. Like, hey, you, are we still good for lunch on, on Wednesday? Yeah, I'll be there if the Lord wills. Right? Now, I have known people that have done that with everything that they've said. And I'll tell you, um, I can tell, or I've sort of seen when the heart, like some of them, I'm like, I believe them. Like, they're, they've, they've convinced me. Like, they truly are like, they just are waiting and kind of trusting on the Lord's working and timing and, and, and will, and that's just like flowing from who they are. Okay, I have no problem with that guy or that gal. The, the, the guy that kind of bugs me or gets under my skin a little bit is the one that just sort of says it, and you feel like there's no genuineness in it. It's just kind of like, I know I should say that. Like, nobody, don't be that guy, okay? We don't, nobody wants that guy around. That's not what James is saying. It's, hey, tack on this phrase, and then any plans that you make are kind of covered, right? Like, that's just so the opposite. Like, that's like, you would get a face palm from James. Like, he's just like, no, like, that's not what I'm saying here, all right? The question that you're really trying to go after is this, is, is God's will at work in your coming and going? Now, let's even, like, think about, like, how would we answer that? Is, do we believe this, church, that God's will is at work in our coming and going? Yes, we would say that God is present in all the little things. And so, if he is, then what we're doing is we're just acknowledging that. James is calling us to acknowledge that which we believe is true and to guard against this self-sufficiency that we might be portraying. That's what's happening here is the self-sufficiency of I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna do this with no regard for what the Lord might be kind of leading or directing or kind of what comes in that. And listen, we have to understand, church, we are not just being discipled in our small groups we're not just being discipled uh, by men and women in the faith. We're not just being discipled by God's word. We are being discipled by things all around us. And the message being preached by our current culture is this, is that you can make it on your own. You are good enough. You're strong enough, right? You have everything at your disposal that you need to make it. And if you read the right books, know the right people, try hard, you can do whatever you want. That is sort of the message that is being preached all the time around us. And if we're not careful, we're gonna forget God, forget God's sovereignty, and we will be inclined to say, yeah, you know what? I am good on my own. I don't need God for this. And the more that I pastor, the more that I spend time with people, the more that I've been in the hospital room at the end of life, I'm convinced of this, that I think God was pretty intentional in the way that he allows our final days to sort of return to that inability to help ourselves and that sometimes that that lasts for a little while. I know some of us, we have loved ones right now that we're watching and it's hard to watch people grow old because it's a long process and there's things that they can't do themselves, right? I mean, it's like you return to that child state, right? They can't clean themselves up. They can't eat. They can't kind of get up or go anywhere on their own. They, they need help with everything that they, they have and they are. And it's so hard to watch loved ones in that place. And some of you, again, you're in that place now. You, you, you see and you know that. But you know what? 
again, as I've pastored and spent time with people and seen, I'm convinced that that is actually a grace that God has given us, that that process of death takes a little bit of time. Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that God is giving people at the end of their life an opportunity to say, are you sure? Are you sure that you are good on your own? Right, because you, you can be the most athletic, the most confident, the most accomplished person, but when the end of life comes, you're just as incapable to do those things for yourself as anyone else. And I, I just believe that God is trying to get our attention and say, listen, you need me. I am your maker. I am your creator. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one. Are you sure that you want to enter into the next life on your own? Are you really that self-sufficient? See, I, think, I believe it's God's grace. Now, that doesn't take away the pain of like walking through that with somebody else. That doesn't take away the fear of kind of, you know, that's kind of coming for, for many of us. That's going to be, not all of us are going to die in that way, but, but the death is coming. And as we think about that, for some, I mean, they just get really terrified with that. But I believe it's an opportunity that God is asking us at the end of the life to return to him and to really humble ourselves and to really submit to his control, his leading, his power in our life. And so in that, what we're doing is we're recognizing the sovereignty of God. And then knowing, remembering, or recognizing rather the, uh, the uncertainty of life, remembering the sovereignty of God, I think then what, what we're called to do is to guard against arrogance and then walk in humility. That's the practical outworking of this. Guard against arrogance, walk in humility. That's what uh, James is calling for the church here in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's interesting the way that he phrases that. I think it's okay, we're told in other places that we are to boast, but what are we to boast in? <laughs> we're to boast in the Lord, right? The power, the goodness, the greatness of the Lord. We're to boast in the Lord's doing, but that's not what they're doing. They're boasting in their own coming and going, right? Their own capability. As it is, they're boasting in their arrogance. Listen, this is the place that we operate so easily from, our own pride, our own self-sufficiency, our own arrogance. And so we need to guard against arrogance, this arrogant thinking that I control my destiny, I can shape my future, I can do these things. I've just seen it so many times where our hopes are up, they get down, and we're like, man, I thought I was in control. I thought I was in the driver's seat. For some of us, maybe we need to commit to memory this verse here, Proverbs 27.1. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let's be careful that we're not boasting in our own arrogance and what we're going to do and how it's going to go and the way that it's going to unfold. I think we need to ask this question a little more often. It's this. When's the last time you asked this question? How is God present or how is he leading in these plans that I have made or am making? Right? How is God present in these plans that I've made? How is he leading in these plans that I'm making? It begins with an attitude, that attitude of recognizing the uncertainty, remembering God's sovereignty, and then taking action to lay and, 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 and put plans in place that account for God's leading and his working. You know, it's so simple, but, but, but I think we miss it all the time. The place that we need to start with this, we need to start with prayer. I think oftentimes what we do is we start thinking, the wheels start turning, we just kind of make a plan, and then we go back to God and say, God, are you in this? Are you leading this? Are you gonna bless this? Right? We kind of like, kind of try and seal it with prayer. I think we need to begin with prayer. God, where are you leading? Where are you taking me? 
We need to look to Scripture. God has not spoken to every specific situation that we're going to have and we're going to encounter in his word, but he has spoken to many of them. And so, so many times we're kind of scratching our head, man, I wonder what God would have me do. It's like, well, he hasn't exactly said for this situation, but he's given you some principles to operate by. So are we, are we starting with that? We got to go to scripture and search scripture and say, has he, has he spoken to this? Is he calling us toward this? Has he prohibited something that we're trying to chase after? Are we missing something that he's called us to? We need to go to, to scripture. And then we need to seek wise counsel. Hopefully you have some people in your life that will tell you the way that it is. Not just friends that are gonna like kind of encourage whatever great, bright idea you've come up with. Because <laughs> that's kind of sometimes the way that we approach it, right? What we do is we make plans, then we ask God to bless it, we look for verses that give us permission, and then we go and rally all of our friends that want to like support it, and we feel good about where we're going. We're like, see? Everybody's for this and, and, and in this. When I think we need to start all the way back at the other place. We need to guard against our own arrogance and in humility ask God, where are you leading in this? Is this the direction you're taking us? As a church staff, we've tried to uh, do that even this past week. Um, we, uh, we've been talking and kind of planning for a staff retreat with the elders um, a little bit and kind of talking a little bit about um, this opportunity that we had this week. And so we, we got together and kind of away as a staff for a little bit and um, for two days this past week and sort of um, tried to do some strategizing and planning and looking forward to where, uh, what God is doing. And we mixed in some food and fun along the way too, um, of course. Uh, but the question that we sort of framed our time with is, is not so much what are the things that we want to see accomplished, right? But where is God leading our church? What do the next five years look like? What do the next 10 years look like? What are the next three years, the next one year? What does that look like? Where is God leading us? And all the while, trying to have this open-handed approach of, okay, God, we think we see you sort of leading us this way. We think this is what you've called us to here in this place. And so we're gonna head down this direction unless you make it really clear that we're not. But through prayer and through wise counsel and through seeking after God, what have you called us to? This is where we're going. And we're gonna continue to pray about that. We're gonna talk about that together with the elder team. And then in the new year, can't wait to sort of unfold that and, and kind of unpack. I don't think it's gonna be anything like rocket science, like, oh man, this is a totally new direction. But what we're seeking after is clarity of what does, so we've just, we're five years old as a church. What do the next five years look like? And so we're seeking the Lord on those things. I would encourage you in your own plans, as you seek to lead your family, as you seek to lead even your company, if you have influence and, 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 and kind of can speak into where, where you're, like ask the question of where is God in these plans? Where is he leading in this? And then James kind of tacks on this phrase, and I think this was probably a, a saying of the day, but, but so applicable. And this, I mean, you can take this and, and apply this to all sorts of things, okay? So this is not just this passage, but he is linking it to this, verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. What's he talking about there? He's talking about um, what we would call sins of omission. Do you know the difference between sins of omission and sins of commission? Uh, sins of commission is the things that God has said not to do and that you choose to do. So don't do this, don't do that, we do them. Those are sins of commission. They get a lot of the airtime. A lot of our prayers of repentance or, or kind of you know, going before the Lord and saying, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. It's, it's, it's a lot of times the sins of commission that we focus on. But I think James is right in sort of doing this. He's like, listen, 
This is so easy for us to do that, that, that to, like even this week, you're gonna make plans and you're gonna fail to think about, God, how are you present in the plans of my life? And he's saying, if you know this now and you fail to do it, for you it is sin. And so in some ways, if I was to be kind of um, a little playful with it, it's like, you know, hey, you're welcome. As your pastor, I just kind of gave you one more, you know, way that you can sin now, now that you know this. If you didn't know this before, like, you know, great. But that's not my fault, right? That's James. James is the one who's doing it. So, so talk to him, you know, bring it up with him uh, when, 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 you, when you get a chance to see him. But no, what it's saying is, is now that you know, you have to do it. And to fail to do it is sin. You know, it is a good reminder that, that there's a lot of things that God has instructed us to do. We talk about trying to structure our small groups around the one another's, that we're forgiving one another, that we're bearing one another's burdens, that we are loving one another, that we're caring for one another. Those are all things that we've been instructed to do. If we, sins of omission, if we fail to do those things, then we're not doing everything that we know that we are supposed to do. And it, for us, it's sin. A bit of a, I think, bonus point for us is like, you know, how often are we repenting over the sins of omission? God, I haven't been doing this thing. I haven't done this thing that you've called me to. I've been missing this, not just the things that we do. All sorts of areas that we can uh, look at uh, with that. But that's what it looks like as we seek to, um, as we seek to uh, uh, live with our tomorrow, remembering God in it. He kind of shifts gears, but it's connected, it's related. Um, in the next section, talking about our riches. Let me read it in verse one of chapter five. Same phrase. Listen up. Hey, look up here, right? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in, in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let me give you the point. We'll kind of unpack it, but it's this. I think it begins with this, recognizing the dangers of wealth. He's talking about riches. He's talking about wealth here. There is some inherent danger in wealth. Now, um, the tone, you probably notice, shifted a little bit. Commentators are pretty convinced that this section in particular is not necessarily addressed to the church, but maybe addressed to the situation that the church is seeing around them. Notice the language that he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It's still meant to be a, a word of warning or caution, right? Trying to, 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 to move toward a new path, but it's not this, this anticipated that they're gonna respond with repentance. So that's kind of like why commentators, why I think I would, I would kind of side with that thinking as well, that maybe he's trying to address those outside of the church or being impacting or impacting the church, that these are, these are those that are rich that are far from the Lord. And he's trying to warn them of what's gonna happen if they continue down the path that they're on. And what he's saying here is that there is inherent difficulty, there's inherent danger that comes in our riches, in our wealth. Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand a lot of times when we kind of come to passages like this, it's really easy to um, kind of assume that, that, that he's not talking about me here, right? 
Um, and we would be mistaken if we don't see all of us in some degree that we are all, all of us, I don't care what, how many zeros are in your bank account, um, whether that's none or many, uh, all of us have wealth to some degree. See, we don't consider ourselves wealthy or rich. Many of us, I'm not gonna ask you to show of hands, how many of you think yourself as rich, right? Maybe only a handful of, of hands would go up, um, but that's because we're kind of looking at our immediate surrounding, kind of like, well, what, how do I stack up with those around us? But even those among us here that have like even <laughs> what we would consider very little if you were to travel across seas, kind of stack up people from all sorts of different nations and economies and things, um, our country, those that live here, would stack up high in the like, kind of wealth category, right? Like we would be in the upper percentage. You, like the rest of the world is looking at you and saying like, hey, you don't consider yourself rich. You are for sure rich. You're like, no, I'm not. And like, yes, you are. Like that's what the whole world would say as they're kind of looking at us. And so I think it's helpful that we understand that. We don't say, yeah, I hope he or she is listening. This one isn't for me. I get a hall pass here. All of us need to recognize the dangers of wealth. And I would say this, if you don't recognize that wealth carries with it a level of danger, then you are denying the simple truth that is presented throughout the scripture. Let me take you to two places. 1 Timothy 6.10, some of you know this verse, but it gets misquoted all the time. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. How do we usually say it? Money is the root of all evil. That's how it often gets phrased. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So there is evil that doesn't come from money, and like having money is not necessarily leading to evil. It's loving your money, which will lead to all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, there's danger. There's danger in our wealth. Jesus addressing this, he talked a ton about money. But Matthew 19, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? That the odds are stacked a little against the rich person and he's made it a little trickier for them? No. He's saying that for the rich person, their heart, there's something about the heart of the rich person. He says, where your money is, there your heart will be also, right? Where your treasure is. And so there's, there, there's easy for those that have much to be, that's where their heart is, that's where their hope is, that's where their joy is, that's where their sufficiency, their, their significance is found in that. And so he's saying, for the rich, it is difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven because they need to set that aside. And they need to find their, their all, their hope in the Lord. See, there is danger in wealth, and these are dangers that are coming. How has it affected these, uh, these rich that he's writing to here? Well, there's several, there's kind of four, four places. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. What does that mean? Well, they've stored up so much garments, so many clothes for themselves that... that they can't even wear them all and they're falling apart, right? There's this excess. There's excess in their, their, their silvers and their gold. It says your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and they eat your flesh like fire. I think, um, you know, scripture knows that, that gold and silver, I think James knows that it doesn't rust or corrode like kind of like a metal, but it does become tarnished. So I think the idea that they're sitting so long becomes tarnished. It's like that tarnishing is evidence of your own soul being tarnished, kind of corroded, eaten by these things that you've given yourself to. What have you done? You've laid up treasure in the last days. He's like, there is not much time left. And what are you doing? You're building bigger barns. You're storing up your stockpile. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crowing out against you. It's led the rich to this place that they're, they're gaining by taking advantage of others. It was very common in the day to pay the day's wages. So they would come, they'd work the fields, and then at the end of the day, hey, here's your paycheck. They'd come back the next day, hey, here's your paycheck. Holding back the paycheck, trying to invest and use that in other ways. And he's like, listen, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the, the, Lord of the host, rather, he sees, he hears, he knows what you are doing. You're not fooling anyone. You're out of your greed. You've defrauded and you've taken from those who don't have as much as you. And you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Luxury by itself is not always a negative word. That self-indulgence always is. It always connotates a, a sinful attitude when it's used in scripture. So the two together, it's like, hey, you're just building this world for yourself. And you're taking more for you, more for me, and you're, you're finding, again, your pleasure, your commitment, your satisfaction in these things. And you've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. It's like the end is coming, and all you're doing, like a, like a cattle being fattened up, you are fattening up your heart. And the day is coming when you're going to have to give account for what you're doing. And you've condemned and you've murdered the righteous person. That's kind of a confusing verse. Like, has there been an actual murder that's, been a, uh, that's happened? Is there... Is, there, is it kind of like murder? It doesn't really go into detail there, but I think, I think the point is clear. What, it, what he's getting at is that it, it's kind of come to the place where there's so much desire that it, you covet and so you murder, right? That's what we, we saw last week. And so there's this, this, this progression that's continued in their thinking. There is danger in the wealth that we have. And so, again, clarity, clarity. What's James not saying He's not saying that all rich people are evil. He's not saying that it's wrong to have wealth. He's not saying that, it's, that you can't have a nice car, you can't have a decent house, you can't have a fancy meal. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, though, when you move into the place that that is what you love, that is your, what your life is after, and you are just acquiring and building more and more for yourself, that it is fueled by greed, and what can I have, and what can I get, and how is that gonna be? Like, that's when you're setting yourself up for trouble. He's calling against the dangers of wealth. And then how do we respond? How do we guard ourselves against that? Well, we do this. We remember the ownership of God. We remember the ownership of God. He recognizes, he says, listen, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord of hosts. In saying all these things, he's like, listen, you're, you're doing all this for yourself, but what are you doing for the Lord? Right? It's kind of like, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. Kind of the same thing applies to, to our riches. Like, what are you doing with that for the Lord? Here, if you remember nothing else from this morning, I think if you can capture and understand this simple truth, this will change the way that you handle your finances, the resources that God has entrusted you. It's this. If you can acknowledge that God is the owner and I am the steward. God is the owner, I am the steward. All of the things, everything that we have belongs to him. Your car, it's his. Your house, it's his. Your job, your source of income, it's his. That phone, that whatever. You've got, it's his. You are merely the steward of these things. The money that, you, that passes through your hands, you are the steward of it. The question is, how are you going to give account to the way that you are using what belongs to him? If God is the owner and you are the steward, it changes the way that you handle the resources that you are entrusted with. 
Again, God does not call us to give everything back to him. Throughout scripture, what you see is the people of God are called to lay a portion back or give a portion back to the Lord. He lets you use and do things with all the resources that he, or most of the resources that he gives you. He's just asking for a portion back. See, you never do you see the people of God kind of coming and, and living in complete poverty and laying everything at, their, at, at, the, at, at, at God's feet or in sacrifice to him. Rather, it's all uh, being given and only some is being asked for. And so there's like, the question is then, how are we stewarding the rest of it? We're giving some of it back to the Lord, but then the rest of it, we're stewarding for good things, to bless others, to benefit not just myself, but those around me. And I think, I think the, the application here or the warning kind of leads to this. If we recognize the dangers of wealth, we remember the ownership of God, then I think we need to guard against greed and walk in generosity. Plain and simple, greedy indulgence is wrong. If you are acquiring, going after, trying to build up your own sort of net worth and all the things that you have for your own greedy gain, it's just wrong. There's danger in that. Your heart could be torn or pulled toward those things. And so in the same way that we stop and we ask, God, what part do you have in these plans? What part is God a part of these? I would also encourage you to ask this same question. Have, have you ever stopped and asked God, God, what part or what, what do you have to do with my wealth? How are you leading me in the riches? Whatever that is, big or little, you know, many or, or, or few, like whatever resources God has entrusted you with, how is God a part of that and what are you doing with that? You see, I think as we make some decisions that we're gonna live and walk in generosity, we need to do that at the forefront of uh, our, our, our decision. I've heard it many, many times before, but young couples um, kind of get married or, or single people just kind of starting out and they're like, you know what, when, when I get to this certain standard of living or when I, when I get to this kind of job place or I have this kind of you know, margin, then I'm gonna start giving, then I'm gonna start being generous. And what happens is, is that when, when they get to that spot, there's, there's another thing that they need. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And it kind of continues. The opposite of a scene, because I get to walk with you know, young couples, especially in kind of premarital counseling, when they make the decision at the beginning of their relationship together, even if like, they've had different kind of uses apart, but together they're like, hey, we're gonna start our marriage in this way. And even though we don't have a lot, we're gonna be generous with what we have, right? Not foolish with it, not giving it all away, but giving a portion using it for the Lord's work, what I've seen is that generosity then just continues and grows. And then as the standard of living increases, then they have more and more capability to be more and more generous. It just, it just sort of builds. So I would just encourage you is like, the best way to be generous is to start being generous. It, like, it, 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 it kind of fuels itself. The more that you see what God can do through your generosity and, and the way that he uses that and how good that feels to give away some of the things that you have, and again, I think all of us at some level can do that. We all have something that we can give to the Lord or give to others. That's what God is getting at with us. You know, James, he, he spent a lot of time with Jesus. Why? Uh, he was his brother. So he got to hear a bunch of his uh, teaching. He didn't always, I think, um, follow as committed as he was here, but, but, but definitely at this point in time, he could look back and he could hear all these things that his brother, Jesus, older brother, had said and I'm sure he remembers this parable, even as he's writing this. Let me read this. It's from Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 16. It's a parable of Jesus. He says, The land of the rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this and I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I think the warning is we just don't know how many days we have. So what are we doing with the days that we've been given? What are we doing with the resources that we have? We need to ask these questions. Where is God in my tomorrow? Where is God in the resources that he has entrusted me with? What am I doing with those? You know, we... um, it's a perfect kind of place to sort of land this passage for us this morning, but we're gonna move into a time of communion. And as we do, what this is, is this is a chance to remember the goodness and the generosity of God toward us. Scripture says, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We know and understand the goodness of God through the example, through the gift of his riches given in his son, Jesus Christ. God was generous with us. He was so good to us. He offers us forgiveness for the sins, for these these things that distract us, right? Our failure to remember him. But how good is this? This is a reminder. This is, we do this in remembrance of him. We remember God's sacrifice for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so let me pray as the band comes and then I'm gonna kind of, Give us some instructions on how this is gonna go. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness, for your goodness, for your graciousness to us. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are often distracted, not by the big things, but but by many, many little things. Lord, it's so easy for us to forget your goodness and your kindness, your grace toward us. And so Lord, we wanna remember you today. We want to remember you in our plans. Lord, we want to remember you in our resources and our finances, especially in whatever wealth we may have. God, you have been so kind to us. And so we invite your spirits working. God, we ask for your leading. God, I pray that we would just remember your goodness and your kindness. And Lord, that that would move us, that would motivate us toward generosity. God, when we see just how good you've been to us, and Lord, how you've, provi- you've provided everything that we need in you, Lord, then that it would move us to a posture of thanksgiving, gratefulness, God, giving toward you. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you have led and are working. God, we remember you now. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.